Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Welcome to this first session in the webinar series called Publishing Agricultural Development Research in Social Science Journals. My name is Frank Place. I am director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, or PIM, and it's my great pleasure to be moderating this webinar. While there are many important ways to disseminate findings from agricultural development research, publishing in reputable peer-reviewed journals is particularly important for researchers as a means not only to showcase their work, but also solicit peer input, gauge how their own work compares with that of others, thereby enhancing the quality of science and enhance options for career advancement. Deciding where to publish or submit articles is a difficult choice especially for early career researchers. There is now an almost bewildering array of journals in almost every field, but all journals are not the same. They reach different audiences with different business models, impact factors, and prestige. What are the factors one should take into consideration while deciding on a journal? What do editors really want? What makes editors decide what to desk reject right offhand and what to send out for review? How should one handle referee comments? What types of peer review are most useful to editors, to authors, and to reviewers themselves? These are some of the questions that we will address in the, this series of three webinars. The series is co-sponsored by the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, the CGIR Standing Panel on Impact Assessment, or SPIA, and the African Women in Agricultural Research and Development Program, or AWARD. That these organi three organizations came together for this and the high response rate for the series of webinars indicates that what high demand there is for guidance on the publications process. From the standpoint of PIM, this series fits well into our commitment to supporting capacity development of social scientists in the CGI, CGIR and beyond. In past years, we have contributed to this through sponsoring people to attend and present in social science conferences. And as you know, this, that wasn't possible this year. So we welcome this initiative conceived by Ruth Meinzendick and Cheryl Doss, two of our PIM flagship leaders, along with J.V. Minakshi of SPIA and Delhi School of Economics and Michelle Mbu Chihuahua of AWARD. Today, we are very lucky also that Karen McCour, this, the chair of SPIA, and Wanjiru Kamau Rutenberg, the award director, have been able to join us. And I wish to invite them to make opening remarks. First, over to you, Karen. Thanks a lot, Frank. Um, welcome, everybody. Apologies that you can't uh, see me because of a technical hiccup, but uh, very glad to be with, with all of you. Um, let me just um, explain what SPIA is and why uh, we are co-sponsoring this. SPIA is the Standing Panel on Impact Assessment of CJR, um, and part of the mandate of SPIA is to uh, strengthen uh, the capacity for uh, impact assessment uh, done in and with uh, the centers and, and, and on the work of the centers. Now, a lot of that, of course, is work by social scientists since we're as part of, of the strengthening um, objective here. Uh, the publishing part of it uh, is, is key and in particular, as Frank already indicated, kind of seeing the publishing process not just as a as an end goal, but also as a way of, of improving quality and, and, and engaging with the wider community um, uh, in the process. And so um, SPIA is very excited uh, about, about uh, co-sponsoring this and I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Now over to you, Banjiru. 
Hello, everyone. Um, it's such an honor for us as at award to be able to be part of this uh, wonderful adventure. Um, as some of you may know, um, award exists to build capacity, especially of African women scientists, agricultural research scientists, and to make sure that we are widening the pipeline of women leaders in agricultural research on the African continent. I remember, and for us, sponsoring this series is important because um, for example, for myself, I remember as an academic feeling like publishing was such a mysterious uh, process, such a, a, a black box, really, if you will. And sometimes even feeling like the, the, the requirement to publish um, so as to grow one's career as a bit of a punishment. Um, and a lot of why we as awarders sponsoring this series to really try and reframe um, that kind of, for those of us who might have fear or dread around publishing, to reframe, reframe the experience, to remind all of us that publishing is an important vehicle through which researchers get to change the world. You get to do really interesting research and publishing is the vehicle through which the world gets to know about it. Um, policymakers get to hear, um, learn new things. And so publishing is, is that lever that goes, that takes your research from something hard work that you did into hard work you did that is going to make the world a better place. And so that is why we at Award um, are sponsoring this series. Uh, I want to also just take a moment. Um, and, and for us also, another reason is we do believe that African voices matter in the landscape. We believe that African women's voices matter. African women's research matters. African research matters and not to be considered. And African researchers learning how to navigate the publication landscape is an important way of making sure that those voices that matter do get heard. Um, I want to close my remarks by thanking our partners um, at IFPRI, uh, thanking our partners uh, at, at, um, also um, acro across the CGIR, but also I know that there's a number of participants who are joining from Pwani University in, um, in Kenya, in Kilifi, Kenya, and that um, and I just want to give a shout out to those participants in particular, having and, and a lot of our excitement about continuing with joining in this series was also driven by a really productive meeting that uh, I had with the vice chancellor there who emphasized the importance of, of the series and, and these kinds of learning. So for those participants joining from Pwani, I know that this event has been publicized widely across the university. Uh, thank you for joining us. And again, to all the, the award and, and members of the award community who are able to join, uh, thank you. Um, I also want to particularly extend uh, gratitude to my uh, deputy director, Dr. Michelle Mbochuao, who has uh, been really very ably uh, leading this engagement from the award side. Um, over to you, Frank. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, and thanks again to Karen and both of you for, for your great remarks. So our speakers today are very well placed to to give this seminar because they have extensive experience on both sides of the publication process. Ruth Mines and Dick 
is Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and co-leader of our PIM flagship on natural resource governance. She is the author of over 150 peer-reviewed publications based on her interdisciplinary research on property rights, collective action, water management, and gender issues. In addition to her own extensive public extensive publications on these topics. She was the founding co-editor of Water Alternatives, serves on several editorial boards, and reviews for a wide range of journals. Cheryl Doss is a development economist whose research focuses on issues related to assets, agriculture, and gender, with a regional focus on Sub-Saharan Africa. She is currently associate professor and senior developmental lecturer in development economics at the Oxford Department of International Development at the University of Oxford, and she leads the, the PIM Gender flagship. She has published widely in academic journals in economics, agricultural economics, and development studies, and is the editor of Oxford Development Studies. She also serves on several editorial boards and reviews for many journals. Their scholarly contributions have been recently recognized by their peers in 2019. Ruth received the Eleanor Ostrom Award on Collective Governance of the Commons, while Cheryl was elected to the Board of Directors of the International Association of Agricultural Economists. And I'm very grateful to have worked with them for many years. Before we move to the presentations in just a few minutes, let me briefly explain the logistics. Ruth and Cheryl will make the presentation, which is in three sections. After each section, we will take a round of questions from the audience. We ask you to submit questions via the question window on the right side of your screens. Please do so as the presenters speak. Remember this, we, we really want to uh, encourage as many questions as we can, and we have to take them uh, via the chat window because there's many more than 100 of you out there um, uh, and we can't have everybody be speaking. When you ask your questions, please please let us know who and where where from you are and what organization if you represent, if applicable. Please also let us know to which speaker you'd like to address your question. And then I will pose as many as we have time for. And if there are a large number that we can't get to, we will endeavor to answer them after the, the webinar and circulate them back to those who registered. And finally, we are recording this webinar and the slides and recording will be available on the PIM website shortly after the live session. So with that, over to you, Ruth and Cheryl. Thank you very much, Frank and, and uh, Karen and Wanjiru. Um, so we're going to, uh, the first area we're going to talk about is about choosing a journal. And how do we just enter into this process? Um, one thing, this part of this session arises from a number of, con draws from a number of conversations that Cheryl and I have had. We've published together on a number of topics. And in each case, when we're thinking about publication, the first, one of the first questions is where? What? So we've published quite uh, broadly in different types of journals. Cheryl has published in a broader range of the economics journals, but also some of the development journals. Because I do a lot of interdisciplinary work, I've also published in uh, things like ecology and society and um, agricultural water management when I want to reach those types of audiences. So. Um, 
<clears throat> the first thing when choosing a journal that is important to consider is is the audience who is the pe who do you want the paper to reach is it a disciplinary audience in a particular field even maybe something like land economics not all of economics or is it a very interdisciplinary audience that you want to reach and that is um, related to both the methods you're using and the questions you're asking um, for example uh, if you're talking about oh say the effect of male migration on agriculture in ethiopia is it a gender paper that you want to reach a gender audience with? And you might go to some of the, the journals that specialize in that, or a paper that raises general uh, gender issues to a disciplinary audience or to a, um, for example, an audience that cares about migration. When you're doing that, Think about what is the storyline in your, in your uh, paper and why is it relevant for this readership? I think one of the big gaps that comes across in a lot of papers is that it's not clear what the storyline is. You know, what, what really are you trying to say, not just presenting table after table um, or quote after quote. So you need to once you've uh, settled on that audience, you need to frame the paper in terms of how many technical terms you use, how you describe the methods. If it's for um, uh, a group that always does, um, that's very familiar with impact assessment, you don't need to explain randomized control trials, for example. And then the length of the paper uh, will be shaped by what journal because some journals have very strict limits of no more than 5,000 words or even it might be listed in characters versus others that have longer or more flexible length. The next thing in choosing the journal is the are some professional considerations. What counts for you? Is there a list of journals that are really seen as the top five or top ten in your field? or in your organization. That might be shaped by the impact factors and the overall prestige, in your especially in your field. And it might also be shaped by your time frame. Um, uh, like a lot of the science journals do quite quick publication because they have very short turnaround for reviews, um, but higher, higher ranked journals tend to give more detailed referee reports and if you aim really high it might take longer either because you have to do multiple revisions or you might get rejected and need to go to another journal so all of these things are sort of in the mix in terms of the journal prestige there's a number of quantitative indicators like the isi impact factor the schemago alt metrics um, and uh, these are described we're not going to go into each of these but they are described in our powerpoint which will be made available online after the, the webinar um, the 
uh, and we will describe a little bit more on altmetrics later on. But there's also quantitative indicators don't tell everything. The reputation of a journal may not necessarily match its quantitative metrics. So, you know, all of this is just to say these are things you consider. Then there are technical considerations. I also, I already mentioned the length of the uh, article. Some journals require a pre-analysis plan, posting of your data, a certification of your ethical clearance. If you don't have all of that lined up, you may not be able to get published in certain journals. Um, uh, are, and then another really important one is whether a journal will allow you to have a prior working paper or conference paper available on the web before the journal article comes out. I have known colleagues who have been rejected by a journal because there, uh, there was a uh, conference version of the paper posted somewhere else or they had a discussion paper somewhere else. This depends a lot on the journal. Most social science journals do not do that, but for example, nutrition journals are much stickier on that. Then there are also different open access and self-archiving options. Open access is becoming more and more important for really reaching a broad audience and a lot of donors and um, the CGIER really push for open access. So some journals are totally open access. Um, some allow you to post your papers, um, you know, self-archiving later. You have to look into that and how important that is for you. Another consideration is that some journals, there might be a special issue, which is on a particular theme. And sometimes that's through an open call. We want to do a special issue of um, agriculture and resource economics on this particular topic, and anyone can submit for it. And then the editors of that journal, of that special issue will screen them or sometimes they will invite particular people. You yourself might propose a special issue by writing to the journal editor and say, like I've done this when I'm having a workshop on a theme and say, we're likely to have a set of really good papers on this particular topic. Um, you know, would you be interested in uh, allowing us to do a special issue? Uh, there are pros and cons. Sometimes a special issue gets a lot more attention than just individual papers scattered around, but there's often a delay in getting a slot for a special issue, and you have to have everyone together, which in some cases has delayed the publication of papers that were really ready to go for the laggards, and that has been frustrating. The, that's not as much of an issue nowadays with online publication because the ones that are ready can be posted as soon as they're ready while they wait for the whole rest of the special issue. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk a bit about publication models because publishing a journal does incur real costs. There's the editor's time, 
there's the reviewer's time, whether or not it's compensated, and it usually isn't. Then there's the process and the time of somebody who just handles the submission, the publishing platform, the software that's used for all of that, time in copy editing and proofing. Then there might be profit that the publisher wants, and there, if there are paper copies, there's a cost for that. Somebody has to pay those, cover those costs. There are different models and hybrids of these. The traditional model is a subscription model where either individual subscribers or their institutions pay to be able to read the articles. Then with open access online things, they, there were new models of where the author pays to publish there and then it becomes available to everybody for free. Then there are hybrid models where a subscription journal, if you pay them, will make your article available open access. Sometimes and you get a, a subscription by virtue of being a member in such as the American um, Agricultural Economics Association. But there are also vanity presses or predatory journals, which are really mostly about the profit. And when I mentioned the you could pay to make your article open access, sometimes there are provisions for those open access fees to be waived for citizens of certain countries or research sponsored by certain donors. And I, as I said, um, there can be hybrids where you have a page fee in addition, even in a subscription journal. So combinations. I do want, um, I want, there's a lot of talk about predatory journals now. Basically, these are journals that will accept almost any article if they're paid to publish it. And they don't have legitimate peer review or scientific credibility. I want to be really clear that not all journals that ask for money to publish are necessarily predatory because there are very legitimate open access journals like Ecology and Society or International Journal of the Commons. These are that do uh, have good high reputations and impact factor and they do proper peer review. The indications that a journal is perhaps predatory is if you look at the website and there's not a clear statement about who is behind it, you can't find their address. Um, you look at the quality of the published articles and it's poor. The editorial board doesn't really have anybody well-known or interesting. They may have well-known people who don't who actually aren't on that editorial board. So you might want to, if you see somebody well-known, you might want to check whether that person also says that they are on that, that uh, journal's editorial board. If you get unsolicited email invitations um, that are promising rapid publication turnaround, we, we need two more articles for our um, December issue. You know, these kinds of things are 
should raise some red flags. And if it's really not clear what the fees are, all of these things are um, warning lights. Um, let me pause there and, and see whether there are uh, questions that, um, that people may have. Frank, do you want to field yep. the questions? Good. Yeah, just a reminder, to, if, if, if uh, this has triggered some questions, please uh, write them in the, the questions box or chat, chat box, whatever you see on your screens, and we'll try to pose them now. We'll have time at the end of the webinar also to come back to questions related to, related to this topic as well. Um, let me just see if there's anything here. Um, yeah, one question that's come in from the audience is, um, how how important well is how important is the impact factor, um, maybe in your own personal um, considerations and decisions uh, on where to publish. Sure. First of all, I guess I glossed over impact factor kind of quickly, um, in that it's it's the average number of citations of a of articles from that journal and that might be in the last year or over the last five years so a journal that is widely read and cited by others will have a high impact factor um, uh, and i don't have the numbers off the top of my head but uh, a journal like science will probably be over 20 um, that the average article is cited by 20 other articles in peer-reviewed journals. Um, other journals, it's have an impact factor of less than one. Um, that's and generally, science journals have higher impact factors than social science journals. So you kind of have to standardize by by the field. Um, and it's not a perfect indicator. So, uh, you know, because it's only, some of the impact factors are only picking up things that are within a certain set of journals that they review. So it's not a perfect indicator, but it's something that's worth checking. Um, is this a really obscure journal or is this one that's kind of um, getting a lot of attention. So, yeah. Good. Um, uh, let me come to a couple of related questions. One one is that uh, there was a question, is there, is there an official or recognized list of predatory predatory journals, um, so people don't have to do all of this uh, investigation <laughs> themselves? And then there was another a related question, uh, a couple other ones. Um, is, is it is it only predatory journals that send random emails requesting researchers to publish in them, or do, do reputable journals sometimes do that? Uh, and then a third one uh, was there was, a, um, and this one's from Melinda Smale, she gave her name. Uh, I wonder if Ruth uh, might talk for a moment about the evaluation tool she shows on her screen for Vanity Press at the bottom of the PowerPoint slide. Uh, there, there's a, a URL, I think, that you refer, referenced there. So maybe I'll just. Let me group those three. Good, good questions. Okay, I'll have this uh, slide up um, while I'm talking so that people can can 
refer back to it. And as I said, the, this PowerPoint will be posted online afterwards. There used to be something called Beale's List that was of predatory journals. That has been taken down um, for a number of reasons. So instead, there are guidelines. Um, I, I looked at a whole bunch of different guidelines. I particularly like, like this, the first one, the Himmelfarb. Um, and then there is this journal evaluation tool where you can, can plug in and, you know, it'll help you search. Um, the, and there have been journals by certain publishers that were originally all of the journals by that publisher were seen as as predatory but some of those journals have become um, legitimate so um, you know it's it uh, varies by the journal which is I think one reason why there's not one standard list mm -hmm. plus there's just so many coming up every time mm -hmm. but on the unsolicited emails I must confess that I I probably get two of those a day and I just routinely delete them. Um, but I say that and I have been organizing a special issue and I have sent out invitations myself. So there's, you might want to quickly scan those unsolicited <laughs> emails, but if I, <laughs> I get them for um, Journal of um, Medicine and something or other, and I'm going, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> That's not my field. So. Great. So thank, yes, thanks. So let me come back to a couple other questions. So one, one, one or I have two questions from uh, about. Uh, uh, researchers in different stages of their of their lives. So one is uh, uh, from a PhD student perspective. Is it advisable for them to aim for top journals, given that the time given that the time considerations and the need to publish in order to get good jobs? So there's this uh, kind of trade-off. I think they have to kind of weigh. Um, then there's a question uh, from Jessie Lin, who's a postdoc uh, in, in Germany. She said, uh, is it a good idea to start the process of writing a paper with a journal in mind already or to adapt the drafted paper towards a specific journal? Okay, very good question. First of all, I did just see somebody commenting that there is a website that has a list of predatory journals called Predatory. Uh -huh. Uh, journals.com. Um, I was okay. not aware of that. Um, and thank you for pointing that out because I had been looking at Beale's list and I knew that had been taken down. Um, okay, so um, the time frame issue, it, uh, yeah. It's a tough one. Sometimes when you're up for review, if you have a favorable revise and resubmit from a from a really top ranked journal that will be looked on, you know, they they will give allowance for that. But it's um it's one I don't have a good clear answer for. 
Um, sometimes also there's a matter of how topical it is. So for COVID-related um, studies, I think there was a lot of pressure to get things out in journals that could publish on it quickly. And a number of journals actually said, you know, World Development did a special issue on COVID that promised rapid turnaround because it was such a timely topic. And you you want to look for that. Um, but the the other thing is the better it is going into the journal, the the quicker your turnaround will be. And Cheryl will cover some of that next in terms of the overall process. Back to the question about whether you, you, um, you write it from the beginning for the journal or you edit it later. I've done it both ways. I generally like the, the whole study usually has some kind of an audience in mind. And so that guides it. Um, at IFPRI, we have a discussion paper series. And so I often will do uh, submit something to the discussion paper series that's the longer version, that tells the whole whole story. And then, because they're more flexible about the length, and then I'll kind of sculpt, chisel away, sculpt away parts of it and tailor it for a particular audience and journal. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one strategy that, that I've used on occasion. Of course, that goes back to the issue that um, I have to make sure that the journal I'm submitting to does not ex. I exclude something that has been previously published as a discussion paper. Great. Um, let's take a couple more questions. I I, I know that we um, might want to divide this uh, our time into thirds, but I think that we'll get quite a few more questions in this one than perhaps the other ones. So I'll take a couple more, and then we'll move on to the second section. So. Um, one one question that's kind of related to the first one that you answered about the the journals and selection is there was a question that came in about what is an impact factor which is considered to be decent or um, or high in social sciences? <laughs> is there some kind of threshold? <laughs> so I'm on the IFPRI committee for evaluating uh, journals. And if pre internally then has A star, A, B, and C mm -hmm. groupings. And my rule of thumb on a lot of social science journals is that something above a two is is quite respectable. Um, and even some that are in the 1.5 often have good reputations, um, but they're in a in a smaller niche, I guess, but they are, you know, have a good reputation within that. Um, just pulling numbers out of that, out of the air. Mm -hmm. Okay, no, great, thanks. Um, then uh, we had a question that came in from um, Jeffrey from Icrasat. He asks, uh, where, where you talked about uh, the storyline. So he asks, where do you articulate this? Is it in the abstract, in the introduction, or where is it best to put that? 
so it's quite clear. And then what, what about the use of a journal finder by posting your abstract? Can that help you to guide you to a, a particular journal to submit the paper? So yes, somewhere, one of the versions of this presentation did have lists. Oh, no, no, I know. In the resources section of this PowerPoint, we list three different journal finders, um, which are websites that Elsevier, Taylor and Francis, and Wiley have, and probably other publishers also have that, where you can fill in your abstract, and then it'll suggest which of their journals might fit that abstract. Mm -hmm. You have to realize that they're only going to guide you to journals by that publisher. So you would want to look at, you know, more than one of the journal finders, uh. perhaps. Uh, that's just the caution on that. Um, the, in terms of uh, where to tell the storyline, Cheryl's going to come to a bit more about the the abstract and, and some of these things. But I guess reason I raised it early is you need to know what that storyline is as you are writing the paper, as you are um, preparing everything. If you think of, of your paper as a sculpture that is, you know, you, you take all of the, the facts and figures and everything you've collected in that research as this big block of stone, and then your paper is the sculpture you sculpt out of that. You need to know what you're sculpting. Are you sculpting a dog or a, a man? You know, what, what is it that you're, what's your storyline that is there that you want to present to the world? And, and thinking about that is, is where I, um, I'm actually surprised how often when you get to talking to somebody, it's like, yes, but what are you really trying to tell me with this paper? Can they answer that question? That's, that's the important part. Great. So let me just um, ask two more questions that I think were triggered by some of your responses. Um, <laughs> One is uh, you referred to uh, the grading of journals uh, within IFPRI. Is that publicly available? Um, or if not, can it be made available? Um, I think people are looking for these, uh, you know, guides to help to assist them to uh, identify the, you know, reputable journals and, and good quality ones. And similarly from Kenya, from Maricela Mora from Kenya asked, um, she was just noting that students are, you know, since they're required to publish, they're, they're searching out any, any kind of journal to publish in. So is there any kind of ultimate way to filter for uh, authentic uh, journals, uh, uh, given the, the, the large yeah. number that there are out there? Yes. So um, to the first question, I think I would need to ask permission to share our list. And I, I'm a little hesitant to because it is kind of specific to IFPRI in that um, we look at the fields that IFPRI uh, researchers are working in. 
and then we sort of evaluate relative to that field is this a top one of the top five percent or or what so i would i would need to ask permission there um there have been some other uh journal listings that we used as a starting point um, but like the one was very heavily weighted toward economics and discounted any journal that non-economists published in. So that's also not one that I would recommend. Um, what you, in the mean, let, let me let me find out and then we will see what we could recommend as a as a um, guide on that. And then about. Um, requiring students to publish to ask to require master's students to publish in a peer-reviewed journal is a very high bar i would say if you want it to be a reputable journal um because you know going through the whole peer review process and all is is quite a challenge um I would I would first of all check this predatory journals um, uh, website, <clears throat> but with any journal you can just look for the journals website and and use those kind of criteria of saying mm, you know who is behind this journal. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks uh, to the audience for all those good questions and thanks to Ruth for fielding them. Uh, and uh, as she said, we'll try to get back to you on, on one, uh, the one question that remains. Um, so why don't we uh, move over to, to section two then? Is that to, to Cheryl then? Great. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to start with the assumption that you've got your paper put together and are ready to submit it and to think about what next. Let me just add kind of in response to some of the questions, generally when I'm thinking about what journal to publish, when I've got my paper ready to go, I tend to come try to think about usually three journals and say, I'm gonna start with this one. If it doesn't get accepted there, here's where I'm gonna go. And then I'm gonna go to this next one so that I have a plan in mind of, of what I'm gonna do with the, with the paper. And I also find that that's much more encouraging when I get to the point where where it gets rejected that I have a plan and know what I'm gonna do next. So I'm gonna talk about the process. What actually happens when you submit a paper? Um, and so we've got this lovely little chart that talks about it, but I'm gonna go through it um, step by step. So on to the next one, Ruth. Next slide. Sorry, it's not advancing here. Uh, did, did, now has it? No? There. Okay. So once you've got the paper written, you know what the story is, then you're going to get ready to actually submit it. And there's, I think most of us who do this often still get to the point where we get online and are ready to submit and realize we haven't done all of the pieces of it. The first one, and you need to think about this earlier, but it comes up particularly at this point, is who are the authors? Um, is there joint authorship? Do you have other people that have collaborated on the paper that you need to list as authors? You typically need information on them, um, but you need to have really thought early on in the, 
process of writing the paper about who's going to be included as authors on the, on the paper. You need a good title. And one of the things that makes a good title is that it's clear what it's about. It needs to be both interesting and um, obvious as to what, what kind of content the paper is on. Really cute titles that don't tell you anything um, are not very good, although a little bit cute as long as it's got kind of the information so that somebody looking at the title knows what the paper's about and whether they want to read it. A number of journals now have very specific requirements for what they want for the abstract. Most of them have word limits um, and they vary quite a bit. So some of them have very short abstracts, some of them want longer abstracts, so you need to look at this before you're ready to actually go online and submit it. And some of them now have very specific instructions about what they want and how they want it. So World Development, for example, says they want they spell out exactly every couple sentences what they want in their in your abstract. You need to identify a set of keywords. Um, these are the things that people are going to that are going to help people find your paper. Um, so if you you can list the things that are in the title, but you don't need to do that. You, the best thing with keywords is to think about words that are not in your title that people might search for and that you'd want them to use and find your paper. Um, it's actually worth spending a little bit of time thinking about what keywords are the best and most useful to get to attract people to your paper. If you're writing in something in economics, you need to identify the JEL codes. Those are the broad categories in the Journal of Economic Literature that the economics um, articles get categorized by. They're, they're terrible, they don't fit. Most of the things I've written never fits neatly into them, but you're expected to, to list JEL codes. And so it's worth doing those before you actually get online to submit. Um, some of the journals now want um, uh, highlights or summaries of key points that they'll ask you for. Um, so you need to think about that. Um, and you need to identify all of the acknowledgements. And so this may include right, places where you presented the paper, people who have given you important feedback, and all of the donors that contributed to it. Um, and it may be that you have to have grant numbers or various kinds of things. So you need to know what that is before you go on. Um, useful to really think about the structure of the paper. Um, and, and, and make sure that, that you, most journals now don't require that you format the paper for your first submission in their format, um, but having the overall basic structure of it is really useful. So that if you're submitting to a development studies journal, they're gonna have a very different way of thinking about the paper than um, a health journal, for example. Um, you may have annexes and supplemental material that you are going to have to submit, and that also all needs to be ready. Some journals require that you also upload your data sets and make those publicly available. Some journals require that you or encourage you to suggest reviewers. Um, who would be a good reviewer? Shouldn't be your co-authors, but other people that you think might be good reviewers. And if you actually ask you if there's anybody that you don't want them to ask to be a reviewer. So that might be somebody that you think is biased against your work for some other kind of reason. The, the other thing I always encourage people to do that 
you ought to have done this at the stage of preparing the manuscript, but to make sure that your references are correct. Um, they don't have to be for, formatted correctly at this stage, but as a reviewer, I can't tell you how many times I have been reading a paper and saw, oh, here's a reference to a paper of roots. Um, and I've read that paper. I didn't know that paper said that. Let me look. And so I'll look back and realize that they have quoted a paper that doesn't have anything to say with how they're doing it. I find that with my papers too. I'll be reading along. My favorite one is I have a Somebody has cited me and it, from the citation, it looks as though I work on tigers. Um, I will say I have never written a paper on tigers. Um, but when somebody does that, that's a red flag for me as a reviewer or an editor that the person is not a careful author. Um, and so I'd be much less likely to take the paper seriously. So looking back at your references is also a really useful thing to do at that last stage before you submit it. The next stage, on to the next one, is the submission. So almost all the journals now do, um, so you, submission, nope, Ruth, go back one, the submission. Um, almost all journals do online submission. Um, again, read through their requirements early and follow all the guidelines. Um, oh, okay, we've got all this, I said it in the preparation. So you're now, online you're you've got your screen open you sub and you've submitted once you've submitted the next step um is that an administrator for the journal will just check the um the files they'll make sure that the files have all uploaded correctly that your tables are actually included and that um that file is readable and that if there's any guidelines um, about formatting or particularly about length they may send it back to you and ask you to fix it and then um, resubmit it. So that's just a check by the administrators. The next thing that happens is that it will go to the review, the editor. So the editors will make an initial decision of the paper and they're gonna think primarily about whether it's a good fit for the journal and whether the quality is sufficient. So one of the things that they may do at this stage is desk reject it. They may say, no, we're not gonna take this paper forward and send it back with a reject. I think it's really important to remember that a desk reject is not necessarily bad. Um, it's a quick answer. You usually get it um, sometimes within a day or two, sometimes within a week or two, um, but it gives you the opportunity to really think about, well, have, I haven't framed this paper correctly or Sometimes it's that I've had papers where I've sent them to a more policy-oriented journal and they've come back and said, you know, this is interesting, but it's not a policy journal. Um, so it gives you the opportunity to, to turn it around and do something else with it fairly quickly, find a better fit for it at that stage. Their other option that the editor may do would be to send it to referees. So if the editors think that the paper has potential, usually it goes out to at least two referees, sometimes more than that. Referees are chose based, chosen based on their experience in the, or their expertise in the area. Um, and as an editor, what I often do is look for a set of referees that can each address and look at different components of the paper. So I'll typically look for a referee 
somebody who really knows the the setting, um, the context, um, the particular place. I'll look for one that uses that particular methodology, and I'll often look for one that um, is really familiar with the topic, right? So look for a range of referees that can speak to those different aspects of it. Most journals do double-blind reviews. Um, this is less and less true, actually, in economics reviews. Um, but certainly in development studies and the agricultural economics um, journals, it's double blind, meaning that the referees don't know whose paper it is, um, and you will never know who the referees were. Um, so the referees are asked to write a report and they provide guidance to the editor. Um, they typically are not making the decisions, they're just making a recommendation to the editor. And either the editor or one of the associate editors will then evaluate based on the referee's reports and make a decision about this. In a couple of weeks on December 7th, we're gonna have a whole webinar specifically on both writing reviews um, and also on how to respond to them. Um, so come back if you've got specific questions on that. From your point of view, what happens after you submit it? You wait. <laughs> and sometimes you wait quite a while. Um, all the journals are trying to move papers through fairly quickly, but occasionally we get re referees. The worst is when somebody says, yes, yes, I'm happy to referee that paper for you. Um, oh, can I please have an extension? Can I please have another month to do it? And then still don't get it in, at which point we have to go back out and find additional referees. So sometimes the process can be fairly long and you just have to put it down get on with your life write your next paper while you're waiting i would encourage you probably not to contact the journal until it's been at least six months um and often right probably wait until it's more like nine months before you would actually contact the, the editorial office and say has something happened is my paper still there Many of them now you can actually track it online um, on the online submission system and see where it is in the process. And you will most likely see that it's out waiting, waiting for review. So um, in some ways, this is one of the harder parts of the, the journal process is waiting for that first decision. You then, the editor, or depending on the journal, the associate editor makes a decision based on the recommendations of the referees. Um, and there's, every journal has their own kind of wording of how they talk about um, the decisions. The first one that everybody's got a, a basic reject, where the based on the reviews, the editor says, we don't see any potential for publishing the paper in this journal. Um, so at that point, you're done with that journal. You need to figure out what's useful in the referee reports. Sometimes, sometimes they give you really useful information about why they didn't think that paper was um, written or appropriate. Again, sometimes they might suggest other journals that it might be appropriate for. You've really aimed too high. It's a really interesting paper, but you've aimed too high. Um, you could go down to the next level. You don't at this stage, right, have to respond to the reviewers' comments. Um, you can take what's useful out of those reviewers' comments. 
um, as you revise it and think about where to submit it elsewhere. I would encourage you to at least think about taking some of those comments seriously. I think many of us who've been in the field for a long time have rejected a paper somewhere and then gotten asked to review exactly the same paper for another journal. Um, and if it's clear that none of the suggestions that I've made have been taken into consideration, that's not going to make me very likely to want to accept it the next time, even if it's a, a lower level journal. So again, you don't have to take all of them into consideration the way you do if you're revising it for the same journal, but think about what's useful. What information have you been given? Often you've gotten really good feedback and take some of that into consideration. The other, there's a whole set of um, decisions. And again, it depends on the journal. It's either a major revision, a revise and resubmit, or a reject and resubmit. Um, that's the next category. I'll come back and talk about those. Or you might get a minor revision or accept. It's very rare to get either a minor revision or accept on the first round of reviewers. Um, I have once gotten a minor revision on a paper, um, but always on everything else that I've published, I've got one of the earlier categories, a major revision, a revise and resubmit, or a reject and resubmit. If you get a, any of these, a major revision, a revise and resubmit, a reject and resubmit, and you're invited to resubmit your paper, congratulations. This is a, this is a really big step. Um, I think people often take this and get really frustrated. Um, but again, almost all papers that are eventually published started out with one of these decisions. So you now have the opportunity to address the concerns of the reviewers. Um, the paper is very likely to be sent back to them. Um, so you need to take this process very seriously. And again, we'll come back to how you do this and what you need to take into consideration in our third webinar in this series. Um, and you also need to know that there is still no guarantee that the paper will be published. We do, as an editor, I do reject papers after they've been revised. Um, but doing the revisions is probably the only way you're going to ever get a publication. One thing to think about is whether the kinds of revisions that you're being asked to do by the editor are possible. Sometimes they're not. Um, sometimes they're asking you to do something that simply can't be done with the data that you've got, um, in which case it may not be worth trying to revise and resubmit it to that particular journal. Other times what they're asking you to do is to do, if you're doing a quantitative paper, to rerun your all of your estimations, maybe using a different approach or thinking about it in a different way or doing some additional robustness checks. And if, if you're still getting robust findings, then you're much more likely to get the paper published. Um, I would really strongly encourage you to respond within the time limits that are set or ask for an extension. Typically, the time limits are relative to how big of a revision they expect you to do. If they give you six weeks to do a revision, that means they're expecting you to do revisions that you can do in six weeks, and they don't actually think that you're doing nothing else during that time. So that would mean that they think that it's quite possible that you can, you can do that. The next, so then it goes back um, to the, goes, 
So then you go back through the process. You go back to the earlier spot on the chart, um, resubmit the paper. Um, it goes typically goes back out to reviewers. They will decide whether or not you've actually met their concerns. Um, occasionally, people who have reviewed the first draft are not willing to re-review it. That's always really frustrating, both from an author's point of view and from an editor's point of view. Sometimes the editor will then make try to read through and see if it meets all of the reviewer's concerns, um, or they may have to find another reviewer to look at it. Um, it tends to be quicker if you prepare a document that really shows and makes it really clear how you've addressed each of the reviewer's comments. Um, but the second decision may still be to reject the paper. Occasionally, some journals will send it back all out again. Um, Typically, it's pretty unlikely that it would be rejected after a third round. Um, usually at that point, they're just trying to get you to clean it up. Um, but certainly, papers are rejected after, the, after you've done an initial revision, particularly if you haven't taken it seriously or just simply were unable to make the necessary revisions. So then, hopefully at that point, you will get a letter saying that the paper's been accepted. Um, that's the real congratulations. Um, you may still be asked to submit a final version that follows the formatting guidelines. There may be a couple of really small things that they want you to fix in it, um, but they've basically accepted it at that point. There are some journals that will still do a careful style editing um, of the paper and send it back to you for for you to accept the changes. Um, so there, there may be a back and forth with the journal. Fewer and fewer journals are doing it these days. Um, and then eventually you'll receive the proofs of the paper, which you need to read incredibly carefully. And also they will usually ask you to respond very quickly. This can be incredibly frustrating. I have a paper that the journal had accepted it they had been sitting on it for almost a year and three quarters, right? Not quite two years, but more than a year and a half. And they sent us the proofs and told us we had to get them back to them in 72 hours. Um, seems like we could have had a little bit longer, but we read them very carefully, made the changes, made this, um, corrected the couple of things, typos. Um, often at that stage, they'll have a few queries about your references. There may be things when they've been sitting it on it for that long, there may be a couple of, we had a couple of references that had now been published and hadn't been previously, um, but that will be your final stage of the publication process once you've um, sent the proofs back. Great. Thanks, Cheryl. Uh, we, did, we did receive a, quite a few questions, so let me get to some of them here. I'll try to group them if I can. Um, there was a question, one question about um, just about the, the, the titles. Are there any guidelines, that, overall guidelines that you have other than, you know, look at uh, what journal you intend to submit this to? And then there was a query about uh, author lists. Uh, the, the question was, uh, some re some researchers prefer to have a short author list of two to three. Does it mean anything for the quality of paper to have a longer number of authors? Um, 
say, I, could, I think, you know, we, we see a lot of the science and, and nature papers that have 20 authors or something like that. So over to you, Cheryl. Um, titles, I guess, again, just to be real, the, the title should be really clear to tell the readers what the paper is about. Um, you could look, again, look at, look at examples of titles in that particular journal to see what they're, um, how they're done. Um, I, I generally would say the titles that go on for three lines are too long. Keep them moderately short, but really clear as to what they're, what your paper is about so that readers will find it and want to read it. Um, in terms of authors, um, it varies so much discipline by discipline as to how many authors you need to include um, and, and what it means for somebody to be an author. In some disciplines, kind of everybody in the lab is expected to be listed as an author um, on a paper that came out of that lab, so in the sciences. Um, it may be that people who are were really involved in the data collection expect to be listed as an author. Generally, my view on it in the social sciences is that you want to include the people who have made a substantial contribution um, both to the analysis and to the writing of the paper. Um, one of my kind of rules of thumb is I wouldn't, I generally don't want to include somebody as an author on the paper if I wouldn't be comfortable having them present the paper, right? That's a pretty good sign that they're of whether or not they're an author. But again, that needs to be discussed really early on in the process so that you're not alienating people who expect to be authors and not including them. Um, in terms of the numbers of people, again, um, you need to include everybody who fits that criteria. Um, the advantage of having a shorter number and or being the first author is that your name shows up in the in-text citations, uh, right? <laughs> if there's one or two authors, if then you both show up, once you get more than that, then it's only the first author and then at all for everybody yeah. else. Um, and I will say that the order of order of authors varies by discipline as well. So you need to think about what kind of a journal you're publishing in. In economics, it's alphabetical always. Um, in other journals, it's much more likely to be the order of the magnitude of the contributions. Um, but discussing that with your co-authors early on is really important. Great, thanks. I have th three questions that are kind of related to your weight, uh, weight uh, slide. <laughs> uh, so one, one is uh, that, that says some of the journals have a very long turnaround time between submission by authors uh, to, to the initial decision by the reviewers and editor. How can one know a priori about what's uh, the performance of, of journals? So that's one question. A second one is um, that said after submitting the paper, the a status shows awaiting for a referee invitation for over one month. What does that mean? And does it indicate a good answer for the author? And then relatedly to something you also said was, so if you're if you're stuck in one of these very long processes of a year and three quarters that you had, is it necessary then to do another scan of the literature and update your whole uh, section related to your literature review? Good. Um, so how can you know, the question was about, how do you know how long? Um, so 
I mean, I think there's journals that have reputations for taking a really long time and there's particular editors or associate editors. In some journals, the editor makes all the decisions and in some it goes to a set of associate editors and the associate editor will make all of that. And by talking to friends and colleagues, you may be able to find out something about the reputation of particular journals or, or editors. When you look online and it says that you're, it's waiting for the referee invitation, it means that they, they don't yet have a referee or they, they're waiting for at least, they don't have a sufficient number of referees who have agreed to review the paper. Um, why is that? It may be that they have sent out invitations and people have said, no, they won't do it. Um, and then you, the editor has to go back and come up with additional people to ask. Um, and I will say sometimes we go through quite a list of people who are not willing to review the paper. Um, and so it just takes a while to find somebody who's willing. It's also the case that we send out invitations and ask people to review and they simply don't respond. Um, and so at what point, at some point, we then have to go back in and say, okay, let me find another reviewer. I mean, I, I typically invite more people to start with than I actually need because I know some of them won't respond um, or will say no. But it means, what that means if it says it's waiting for a referee invitation is that they haven't yet identified all the reviewers that they would, would need. Mm -hmm. um, what was the? Oh, third just about one? Re re updating your reference list for these long processes. <laughs> um, your literature review. So on this one, I mean, on, this one had been already accepted, right? So we had a paper already accepted, completely done, accepted, um, and then it took them a year and a half to get the proofs to us. So we did update, we didn't do a new literature review, but we updated anybody's references if a paper had been a discussion paper and now was a published paper. Um, if if it's been a long time since, it, so if you if you get an answer, it's been a long time, but then you get an answer of revise and resubmit your paper, then yes, you need mm -hmm. to update the literature review at that point before you resubmit it. Okay. Um, if it's been a really long time and then it's accepted, you might think about, you wouldn't need to go back after it's been accepted and, um, rethink your literature review, but if there's something new that has come up, um, particularly something that's getting a lot of attention that you need, that you feel like you need to include in your paper, you can still usually do that at that stage. Good. We have a, a quite a few questions come in. I think some are general that I'll try to come back to it at the very end of our, our session, and some were really specific to you, to you. So I'll do a couple more questions, and then we'll move on to the third sec session, just so we have time for that. Um, one question was about uh, regarding the owner, the data sets that uh, people submit at the time of their paper submitted. If it's rejected, what happens to the data sets? How can we make sure that my da the data sets are not used for other purposes? And then there was two questions about um, the, the peer review processes themselves. One was about the, an open peer review process. Um, 
Um, have you been involved in one? If a journal offers this to a researcher, would you recommend it? That's coming from Maria Garuccio. And then another question about um, a pro the processes on the double-blind review. Um, someone had, uh, Wei Zhang of, of IFPRI had the experience where the journal asked the authors to choose whether we reveal their identities. Can you talk about the pros and cons of revealing identities? And then what is the rationale, what would be a rationale for journals not to do double blind anymore if that's the kind of the, the evolution of the, 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 the process? Okay, um, let me say something quick about data sets. Mm -hmm. um, I don't actually know what happens with those data sets, but this is one of the reasons why you don't want to submit to a predatory journal. You certainly don't want to submit your data to a predatory journal. Many of them don't actually ask that you submit your data until the paper's been accepted um, or are happy to have you not submit it till the paper's been accepted. Um, so if you have really proprietary data, you might, you might want to think about that, but it, when you're figuring out where to submit your paper. Um, but if you're submitting it to a reputable journal, I don't think you have to worry about somebody taking your data and doing something new with it um, before your papers published. I don't have any experience with the open review, so I'm not going to really speak to that. I don't know if Ruth does. We can I can ask her. Um, the reason that that I think the economics journals are moving away from double blind reviews are because the expectation is that by the time a paper goes for review, many of the people who are the reviewers already have seen the paper. Um, the authors will have presented the paper at conferences, at seminars, they'll have a working paper version of it, they might have multiple working paper versions of it. And so it's really not a double blind process, even if your name isn't on the journal, isn't on the, on the paper that's being sent out, right? People will already know that. Um, and so it just makes it, I think, I think the argument is that since many of the reviewers will know who the authors are, there's no point in trying to hide that. Um, the, the advantages and disadvantages, um, right, I think for so many things, if, if, if you're reviewing a paper and you really want to know who the authors are, you probably can figure it out. Um, you can Google it, find out whether somebody's presented that paper somewhere, right? Most of us do enough things with our papers before we submit them for publication that's now on the web somewhere that a reviewer could figure that out. Um, so it's just, I think that's the main reason that people have been, been moving away from it is because it's become kind of irrelevant to claim that there's that it's really double blind. Right. The, the idea, I mean, there's all this work that's been done on, on biases in review. Um, and so that's one of the concerns is that it's more biased and that being anonymous gets rid of some of the bias, but that doesn't really help if people already know who the authors are. Right, well, thanks very much, Cheryl. I think we should move on to the last part so we can get it in. Um, so is it back to you, Ruth, for all? Nope, it's me again. Oh, it's you. Okay, okay. Over to you, Cheryl. <laughs> so this is actually pretty quick, but this is about what happens after it's been published. Um, it's always really exciting. I still get really excited when I get to see the paper actually in in print on in print now on my screen. Um, but you're not done yet. 
um, what you really need to do at this stage is to create a buzz about your paper and make sure that it gets read and gets cited and that it gets the recognition that it needs. So you, the journal will do some of this, but it's also really up to you as an author now to promote the paper. So you can affect how widely it's cited and how widely read. So send it out to everybody you know who might be interested in it. Um, make sure that your organization's library knows that it, right? And so if you're working with um, CGIR, make sure that, that your publications people and comms people all know that you have this paper so that they can publicize it. If you had a donor that funded it, make sure that they know that the paper was um, published so that they can send it out. Um, so do this quite widely. Use whatever forms of social media you use, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, to make sure that people know about your paper. Um, you might also blog about it. Um, so lots of kinds of places where you can write a blog about it. Um, target the blog to their particular sets of interests, um, but it's a way to get information about your paper out to a wide, longer, wide group of people. Um, and it's really clear that doing this makes a huge difference in terms of how many people read and see it. The key thing is that when you're doing all of this, make sure that you include the DOI link, because that's the link, that's the way that a lot of this gets counted. Um, so, so send it out. Don't, don't feel shy um, about doing this. This is just kind of a, a typical timeline of attention um, and what, how, how it works, um, that you start sending tweets. Um, there may be news outlets that pick up the research. That sounds really grand. That may be, may be big grand news outlets. Um, the Economist occasionally publishes little articles on based on academic papers. Most of us don't have most of our papers in that kind of way, but other um, other news outlets, local kinds of things, things about particular topics may do that. Um, people start sharing it. People start reading it and commenting and blogging on it. If you can have somebody else blog about your paper, that's great. Um, some of the, there's, there's blogs in all the fields of, of people whose blogs are really widely read. Um, and then it might get featured as a research highlight, um, either by, by some kind of an organization. Um, and then eventually you'll start to see the citations appear. So it, getting citations takes quite a while before they're actually coming out, but doing all of these other things in the meantime, make sure that your article gets read, um, that people are aware of what you've said and will be ready to cite it in their, in their next paper. So one of the things that's widely used now is the Altmetrics Attention Score, which is a system that's tracking not citations, but about the attention that it gets online. So it tracks and reports conversations um, from various things, from policy documents, all the social media. So if you can get a Twitter conversation going about your paper, um, blogs, and all of these kinds of things. So this helps you to see whether your paper is getting that kind of initial immediate attention. Um, again, you've got to keep the DOI in there um, for, it, for it to show up in the alt metric scores. 
but more and more places are counting the altmetric score as well as the citation index as a signal of whether your paper is being widely read. So it's a it's a much more immediate kind of measure of whether your paper is getting attention. Um, the other kinds of things you can do is update your researcher profile. Um, and there's a number of them. There's ORCID, which is I'll come back to that in a minute, as well as Google Scholar. Um, I'll come back to both of those. Mendeley also keeps profiles, and it's not just used for bibliographies, but it's a way of um, highlighting your own work. Um, ResearchGate is another one that people often use, um, pretty widely used. Some of these kinds of, there's a number of them now, of websites where you can publicize your own work. Um, and keep your own biography, kind of bibliographies up there. Um, you want to make sure that the one you're using is the same one that other people in your field are using um, and that they're legitimate ones. Um, REPEC is one for research papers in economics that gets widely used. Um, so all of these are things where pick a couple of them and then keep them up to date with your latest research so that people can find it. The one thing you need to do is you ought to at least be aware of the copyright restrictions before posting any papers on the website. What I do, for example, on ResearchGate, um, when I have a paper that's open access, is it will ask you to upload the paper. I simply upload a page that says, this paper is available open access, so that people can find it and then go and actually access the paper through the journal's website. That has the journal keeping track of the downloads and meets all of the copyright restrictions. So the two of these that are most commonly used are ORCID. Um, it gives you a persistent digital identifier. Um, what a great set of words to put together <laughs> that you own and control. And so that particularly if you have a name that's common and other people have, um, it's a way to make sure that it's connecting your ID with your own work. Um, and so if you haven't done that already, that is one definitely worth doing. It's got all kinds of systems to update automatically once you've got your file started on ORCID. The, the second one that's um, widely used is Google Scholar. It just takes a couple of minutes to, to start a Google Scholar um, citation page, and then it will keep track of all of your papers. Um, and it's a great way to make sure that your work is recognized. And it also does a number of, as do all of these, um, a number of measures of your own, both the success of your paper and of the success of you. So having it show up on Google Scholar and ORCID are two ways to make sure that your work gets recognized and also that you're getting recognized. And we'll just, we'll stop there with that. Great. But your work's not done once, you got to keep going and get that buzz going once you've got your paper published. Right. Good message, good message. So we have a couple of questions just on this session. If we have time, we'll, I'll come back to a couple of the other ones. Um, does the publication policy of the journal uh, not affect the way that you publicize it? Are there um, you know, guidelines, restrictions, uh, recommendations coming from the journals themselves? Um, regarding interdisciplinary, 
papers, it can be difficult to get papers out that are interdisciplinary because many journal papers still have a strong single disciplinary focus and may not find the paper suitable. Um, I guess that's more of a general question. Maybe just to answer the first one first because I think we'll come back to this other one about publishing and so forth. So maybe just the way the one on the um, public publicizing. I, as far as I know, all of the journals are delighted to have you publicizing your paper and trying to drive more people to read and download it. The only concern that they have is that they don't want they want people to download it from the journal site um, rather than having you posting the paper itself um, <clears throat> if it's not open access, even if it is open access. But sending out a link for it, I think every journal is delighted to have you doing that. Can I can I come in on that point yep. though? Yep. When you're sending, you're allowed to send out an attachment. There's a fair use provision. So if there, if you have published and it isn't open access, it's fair for you to send it to individual, send a copy to individuals. And especially to busy people, policymakers, or your donor, sending the uh, the paper itself as an attachment and saying two lines about why you think they might be interested in it is that is allowed, and it will help with that. Um, and you can send it to your friends. You can there there is that fair use provision. The other thing that I've seen is that a bunch of journals will give you like a 45 day or a 90 day link that's free access. And they actually want you to use that because uh, you can, you know, that, that helps in creating the buzz. Um, I've been surprised at how many people don't actually even share that with like, Evgenia for PIM or something like that. And we want, you know, so if you have that little bit, you can share that, but you can send the attachment to individuals. Good. Okay, I'm going to come back to a couple of questions again about selecting of journals, I think. So there's <clears throat> the one that I just read was really about interdisciplinary papers and how do you find good journals for that and specific a question came in about journals around agriculture and gender what are some good um, journals that look at that um, previously we also had a couple of questions about again these de de decision points that that many people face so um, a question came in about um, in case of a re rejection should they immediately look at a lower impact factor journal or should they pursue other journals in the same impact area? Uh, you know, what what are the considerations you m might uh, uh, weigh when you when you're working on when you think about that? Um, then there was another pay, another question that came in from an early career scientist about um, should they be collaborating with already established authors um, as a way to get um, pub published, or should they be starting on their own? So those kinds of questions maybe if you could reflect on those <laughs> let let me let me start on the what do you do when you're rejected um, and whether you go lower down I think it depends on the kind of comments that you get and you need to pay attention to whether the comments are this just isn't a very good right it 
you've you've gone too high and and often you can tell that and if they're really saying you've gone too high then you ought to go down a notch or two in terms of that if they're saying it's just not a good fit um then you don't necessarily need to go to a lower level journal you need to figure out what what's a different journal um maybe reframe it um particularly kind of tying into the interdisciplinary piece there's often a question about do you frame it to be you know one audience or another one and so sometimes when you get it rejected you can say gosh you know maybe what i need to do is i could reframe this send it to a good journal but that's kind of in the one of the other pieces of the of the interdisciplinary there are a number of interdisciplinary journals. A lot of the development studies journals are interdisciplinary and are open to that. Um, I think the challenge on the interdisciplinary work is you need to make sure that it's going to be seen as being making a contribution um, and how it links into some of the more disciplinary work. But you won't publish an interdisciplinary piece in a disciplinary journal, typically. Um, you won't publish an interdisciplinary piece in an economics journal they're only interested in the economics pieces of it but there's a number of journals both in agriculture that are somewhat interdisciplinary as well as in development studies that are quite interdisciplinary and and just to put in a plug next week monday we're having a panel of journal editors where we have two more restrictive economics journals represented and two uh, journals specifically that welcome interdisciplinary. Um, and again, going back to the, the original, don't, even though within econ, there is a prestige factor of publishing in a strictly econ journal, um, the impact factors are generally higher in the interdisciplinary journals. Mm -hmm. Good. And we had a we had a question about whether you should be collaborating if you're a, a <clears throat> young scholar whether you should be collaborating with with more senior people, um, and I think some of the time the answer is clearly yes. You learn a lot by collaborating, um, particularly if you have good people to collaborate with, um, and it can help you. Right, they can also often help you when you get stuck. Figure out what to do how do you reframe the paper how do you do these kinds of things um if you're you want to make sure that you're listed and and your contribution is recognized so that you're the first author in disciplines where that's appropriate and you probably somewhere along the line early in your career want to do something on your own as well so that people can see your own work but i think the i mean most of what i write is is um, in collaboration with other people. I love writing joint papers um, because I think that's the, you, the papers are just much better. Um, you get to share ideas, bounce things back and forth, but you do as a junior scholar need to be careful that it doesn't, that your work isn't seen as that you're just the research assistant on a, on a project for somebody more senior. It thanks. Um, well, we've reached the end of our time, and I think we covered almost all the questions. Not quite, but I think some of them might emerge from in the next uh, in the next webinar um, as well. So we'll keep them in mind uh, as we move into the, the 
the second and third uh, webinars. So now I, I guess I'll, I'll, let me close this one uh, by thanking again uh, Ruth and, and Cheryl very much for this and, and to our co-sponsors co of award and SPIA for organizing this. I think this was a very successful one. We had a, a large number of participants and I hope we get uh, a similar number for the next ones. So this is just a reminder that the next one will be held on November 30th and it's a panel of journal editors as mentioned. And then the final one is on December 7th which is going to provide more details on the peer, peer review process of, of reviewing papers and then uh, doing the revi revise and submit process. And finally, just to remind everyone, all information and recordings and registration links will be available on the event page on the PIM website at www.pim.cgiar.org. So thanks very much, and everybody have a great uh, end of your day.